Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is Monday, January 23rd. This will probably be out on the 25th. Um, we have a very jam-packed episode for you today. Uh, our second half of the show is an interview with Beatrice Adler-Bolton. She and Artie Vierkant do the Death Panel podcast, which a lot of our listeners listen to. Um, and we talked about their book. Uh, this is Beatrice and Artie's book, Health Communism. Um, and mm-hmm. a very provocative look at ways in which we can reimagine thinking about the healthcare system and thinking about care, right? Yeah. And that sort of go beyond, I just want the current healthcare system, but I just don't want to be billed or something like that, right? Like, and like how to think of- Yeah, it gets to something more root, root-based. Yeah, that voice you hear is Tammy. <laughs> We're together again. How are you doing, Tammy? I'm all right. How are you doing? Happy Lunar New Year. In the dark. I know. I don't know. I feel guilty if I turn on too many lights. For what? Why? Because electricity. Oh, oh, oh. So you're, so you're just going to sit in the dark? <laughs> <laughs> I have like one LED light on. <laughs> it looks weird. Oh, <laughs> I know. It looks weird. You look it. like uh, you're you. in like a movie, you know, like a modern, like a thriller. <laughs> And you're doing a Zoom call and like somebody's going to, I don't even want to say it. You know, it looks like a kind of like a horror movie thing. There's a guy know? behind me. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, Tammy, <laughs> turn around. <laughs> Why are you sitting Just in the dark? My face is all like <laughs> illuminated. Um, yeah. Also, what's going on with that light? There's like a asymmetrical lamp behind you. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I got a new lamp. Okay. Well, I think the yeah. lamp is cool. Good purchase. Um, all right. Well, the first thing we wanted to talk about was... Um, what happened this weekend in Monterey Park? Yeah. Um, the death toll is now 11, right? And um, I don't know. It was uh, It's hard to even talk about these things anymore because they happen so often, right? Yeah. And that um, unless certain narratives sort of fit that basically people don't even know what to say. For example, like, I don't know. I wanted to talk about that first, which was just like, you know, at first you hear that type of news and what's the first thought you have, Right. Yeah, everyone said it was an a hate crime against Asians, right? Right, and your first thought was like, "Who's what's the race of the right, right. of the shooter?" Right, and then it's strange because when the news happens, and at the beginning, you know, the sheriff's department in LA just said their only description was male. They're like, "It was a male," and they didn't specify the race. And so mm-hmm. then, in that moment, all these sorts of anxieties kind of blossom up, and they sort of make some appearance on social media, I think, totally. right? Where people just sort of assume the worst. Yeah. Which like I think is a very human thing to do. And I think it is like a response to uh, you know, like whatever has happened in the past few years. And yet at the same time, it's like kind of like a foolish thing to do, right? Because like if it doesn't end up being that narrative, then like, I don't know, like you have to like backtrack almost, right? And yet, at the same time, you're feeling this thing. So, like, yeah. why wouldn't you express it? You know, like, so it's like this really, like, unctuous type of moment, right? Where everyone's just waiting for the race to be announced. Right. I just find that to be so fucked up. It's awful. <laughs> like, any time a marginalized community has, like, one of these mass shootings happen, that's the first thought, right? It's like, what's a race? What's a race? What's a race of the shooter? And, like, what Facebook pages? And once you find out that they're white or whatever, right? Like, if the person happens to be white, they're like... What Facebook pages? Is this a hate incident or not? And it's strange yeah. because, like, our response to tragedy, if it's somebody who is not white, right? Like, I was thinking about it. It's, like, almost like uh, 
it's almost like standing. Do you remember that game like Plinko? It was like, a, I don't know what the right metaphor is here. Plinko seems a little bit like, you know, crass or glib, but like basically you have two buckets, right? And you're just waiting over the bucket to drop one of the buckets, yeah. right? And if it's like, it was an Asian dude who shot, and in this case, it was a 72-year-old Asian man. They right. don't really know that much about the motives, but they think it's somewhat domestically involved, yeah. like some sort of domestic incident. They, that he knew people. Right. You drop it in the, oh, senseless gun act, you know? And if it was a white dude, then you like drop it in the other bucket, right? Yeah. And yet like that thing like what bucket you drop it in is almost the only thing that matters at this point um Uvalde was a little bit different because it was like how much the cops fucked up you know that's why people kept talking about and the fact that it was children I think when it's like first and second graders it's like different but I just like I don't even I'm not even judging here but I just find it so deeply fucked up right now that, that like that we've arrived at this point where and why do you think that's fucked up is it because I mean I'm not saying it's not fucked up, but I'm just like, what do you think it is about that that bothers you? Is it because it does so little service to the actual people? Is it because the families who are waiting are obviously thinking about them all as individuals, and yet we're just having trying to put it into these structural logics? Like, what is it that's wrong about that? Well, I think that in some ways it minimizes it when it's not, right. you know? Um, that because it, it doesn't stand for this thing, right? Right, where the, like the gigantic outrage narratives can't kick in, mm-hmm. right? Because the fundamental, like, sort of standard outrage narrative, which is about guns, right? People have sort of stopped doing in a lot of ways, and people have grown tired of right. it in a lot of ways, yeah. right? And so, like, they just say, "Oh, well, whatever." Another day yeah. in America, like, right. and they share an onion headline, right? The other thing is that if it's the other way where it is a hate incident, then it's just as rote, you know, right. it's not like it's any like it's yeah. not like there's like new ways of thinking about it. And so, yeah. like, I'm not here to, like, scold people. Right. Like, I know that there are some people who, like, you know, might be enemies of the show who, like, started tweeting, oh, this is like white supremacy or whatever. And then they had to, like, walk it all back. And they're like, actually, you know, it's a misogyny. Misogyny is part of it. and just like, shut up, you know, like, <laughs> like come on, like, just stop, just stop fucking stop um it's like it is about misogyny probably but also it's right yeah but like you're just covering your ass right yeah yeah you know know. like like, (laughs) what did you say 12 hours ago yeah just stop and like um i think it's a thing like for media do you feel like media has been messing it up or i mean because i actually think like most reporters are pretty careful to wait oh yeah 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 for sure the reporters Um, i think are fine yeah you know for once No, I mean, I think that the yeah. reporting on that, like, you know, I, know, I saw some people are like mad that there wasn't as much coverage or something like that. It was like, like, I don't know. There was the a middle lot of the night and you have to yeah. wait and also. Right. You know. And the sheriff's department is like just saying, man, like, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. And then um, you can do stuff like that you shouldn't do. Right. Like you can go on WeChat, for example, and you can find oh, posts from people who are saying that they were there yeah. and describing the shooter, which, you know, I did. Or at least I talked oh, to yeah. people who had. And that's why, like, at the beginning, Fuck. most of the time, like, I think you can basically say with 80%, you know, generally, if you're careful about it, like, probably 80% of the time, those are right, you know? And so at the beginning, I kind of, like, had a I sense see. that this was an Asian dude, you know? But, uh, but you know, like, you can't print any of that stuff. Right. <laughs> you, know? you can't just be like, hey, I saw a WeChat <laughs> post. Um, so I think that the reporting was like, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a reporter's thing. I just think that we've become there is something that has happened where 
one act is so and it goes into hate crime stuff right, right. it goes That's into this say, idea yeah. that like if it falls within these parameters of heinousness mm -hmm. that it is worthy more worthy of conversation and now i'm not saying it's not right but what i'm saying is that like for that to be true there is also this illusion that like if we can talk about it in all these different ways right like some of that look i i said i wouldn't complain about these people but i will complain about them a little you know like this idea like this is why you know we need more asian american asian. studies programs like <laughs> dudes like take one off you know, like, how about you just take one off, you know, like, you don't have to always do this. Just take one off, you know, there's fucking 20 people got shot. And like, you're doing this thing again. Just take one off, you know, what is up with that? <laughs> I don't know. It's there was so definitely yeah, there was definitely like theory chatter online. And I'm like, I don't think we need that. Yeah, to right, 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 right. Monterey right. Park. Like, yeah, to do like ethnography of Monterey Park. Yeah. But also, I think we can just know generally the contours of how horrible this is right 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 know. and that like really strange. all that just gets kicked into action when the guy is when the shooter's white right yeah. and then all of it lays dormant when it's not or anyone who's not asian right or do you think right. it's only no if the it's all if it's white people who are killed then it's the same thing you know or no i just white. mean like if the shooter is white or black or latino or anybody who's not asian do you think it automatic or is it just the whiteness that triggers the the hate crimes thing because yeah I, I think i mean i don't know i mean i think if the shooter was black that there would be a much different hate crimes a different, conversation yeah. there right? right latino would have just been confusing you know but like the but the um yeah but the i mean it would have just been dependent on like what social media they had or something like that but hmm. i do yeah. think that at this point it is mostly because it is a pointless conversation right like because we are not going to litigate or talk our way out of these incidents from happening that it most of the effect is a minimizing effect when it's not that narrative you know and that's deeply fucked up you know like and i i, I right. do think that that's fucked up right and i think people should think about it right like i think that they should think about it in the same way that they think about it. they should rethink how they think about hate crime legislation right? yeah. which is just like oh well if the person said something then it means that it's like 20 times worse than if they didn't say right. something right and uh we should just like not be critical about this type of thinking at all even if we do think that like racially motivated crimes are heinous in a very specific way which right. i do you know yeah. like i don't know it's just something about it really bothered me like yeah. it's just like destruct like i just find it destructive and um the tenor you know, like, definitely changed for sure. Right. And then it like, right. Like at the beginning, it was just like people thought, I don't know. I, yeah. I guess I just no, never. I, I hear you. I think yeah. that, that was something that was irritating me too. And yeah, ugh, I don't know. It's just, I think this one. Yeah. I mean, every time, obviously one of these happens, you, I just feel like I hate living in America sometimes. Right. Because it's yeah. such a, this is just such a unique, it's only, it only really ever happens in America. There's no one else, no one, Assume, it's yeah, quite it's... rare to have this in anywhere else, you know? And, and then I guess just because all the victims are like our parents' age, it just really was pretty awful. Yeah. I think that it like, yeah. I think that's also part of what gets lost is that the yeah. specific horrors of these types of incidents, right? Which is, this is a 72 year old man who's walking into a 
dance hall, you know, where yeah. old senior citizens, old people on are Lunar New Year, on Lunar New Year, like a moment of like great joy and like cutting loose or whatever, doing the most know? joyful thing. And then so. they're just shot by this fucking maniac. Right. And like, I don't <sighs> care. like there's a level where I just don't care about the racial aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think when we only care about the racial yeah. aspect of it, then we've lost, like, it shows yeah. some profound no, sickness, know. you know? And, like, there are people, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to sound point. like a right-wing lunatic here. There are definitely people who, like, want it, I think, in some ways to be racialized, you know? I don't think a lot, but I think there are some. And, like, I because just think Because it's easier to have... understand or they, 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 that was, like, a way to stoke grievance. Like, why would that be the case? I think that it is, like, a self-identification thing. I don't think it's like people are so cynical that they're saying, oh, well, this is my platform. This is my moment. I don't think there are No, not quite that. There are a couple like that, you know, but there aren't many, right? But I think that it is a self-identification thing, which is like, I identify myself in this sort of way, and this proves that I am right, you know, about the way in which I think of myself, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that like, it also is showing some of the limitations of the stop AAPI hate type of movement, right? Which is just like, well, yeah. what do you do about this? You know? And, and, and totally. how does your infrastructure that you've built, which is an infrastructure, it has money, it has employees, it has like nonprofits, it has the ear of very influential politicians in a way that like a lot of like, for example, you and I as like, leftist asian podcasters do not (laughs) (laughs) although whatever i mean we have very influential media platforms obviously but like you know um how do you respond when it's not the exact narrative and do you give a shit about this happening yeah um and uh I would never, I think every single person who is involved in that movement cares deeply that this happened, you know, but is the infrastructure that you built able to be responsive to to something like this when it doesn't fit the narrative? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And like, I don't think that it is right now, right? Like, um, it is, it is responsive to viral videos of old Asian people getting the shit kicked out of them, you know, like that's what it's responsive to. And so then, you know, like hopefully there's going to be some expansion of all that, but I don't know. Like I was just like, yesterday was a very upsetting day just because like, I don't like, I'm not talking about like the, the chatter. It's just like a fucking horrific thing to happen. (sighs) Have you been to Monterey park? No, but I've been to Alhambra. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. When Casey and I lived in, Eagle Rock. We would mm-hmm. go down there you all the time there. to go like eat or shopping or whatever. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, like I, everybody is sort of, I'm sure at this point realize what that community is. Totally. Yeah. But like I don't think that that sort of stuff really is relevant either, you know. Like this is a community that that's a flipped thing. over a, to sixty five percent Asian totally. from nineteen seventy where it used to be I was just like, like these people are fucking dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Right. All you need to know is like an Asian area and a bunch of Asian people are dead. Exactly. Know, like, yeah. um, anyway. Um, okay. On to a much brighter and sunnier topic. We're going to be talking with the <laughs> <laughs> About our fucked up healthcare system. About the, yeah, about health communism. Oh I don't know. Maybe we should do, I was thinking like, we should do like a fun segment, but I don't know. It seems totally <laughs> off, you know. 
Um, yeah. And also, uh, I don't know, we can have a depressing one, right? Yeah. I don't know. How's yeah. everything else going on with your life? I'm, I'm doing good. I, I still made tteokbokki and tried to celebrate yesterday. So that's uh, okay. yeah. 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 Did you yeah. guys do that or did you do it on Solar New Year or both? Uh, well, we didn't do it yesterday, but we did it for January 1st. Yeah. Nice. America, white New Year. <laughs> white New Year. <laughs> <laughs> the white. And what's the latest with the newborn? Everything's good. Oh, he's fine. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. He's a baby. You know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. That's good. But no offline, news, no I was ex- telling Tammy that when they're this young, they're just open air fetuses. You know, and there's. <laughs> like, there's something I saw like where like basically like. A very a human babies, right, have to be born earlier than other animal species because the head is too big to get oh, to yeah. the birth canal type of thing. But like ideally, there would be a fourth trimester, right, where the baby is. Oh still, wow! Um, Interesting. And that's how I feel about babies, where just like the first three months, it's like, you know, it's like you should still, you <laughs> shouldn't be you out, out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why are you out here? Go back in. <laughs> You're not ready for this. <laughs> That's how they feel too. Yeah, like, what the like, hell? What, what are you doing? Like you can't do anything. And then sometime around three months, they kind of snap into like you know, uh, they like become responsive and mm-hmm. they feel much more like you know Aww. a thing that should be out. You know, where it's just like whereas before you're just like I don't know, man. Like, you know, isn't there a room that you know <laughs> that can simulate the world? <laughs> oh man. Anyway, okay. Here's our conversation with Beatrice. So our guest today is Beatrice Adler-Bolton. She is the co-host of the Death Panel podcast, which uh, I think many people who listen to our podcast also listen to. Um, It's one that's brought up quite a bit in our Discord. Her co-host there is named Artie Vierkant. Um, Beatrice and Artie are the authors of Health Communism, which is something that we want to discuss today uh, quite at length, actually. You know, I found it really provocative and and worth talking about. Um, And I don't know, I'm very excited to have you here. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. First time, long time. It's nice (laughs) to be here with you both. Uh, (laughs) Nice meeting you finally. Yes. Okay. So like, I I, I just wanted to start with like a definition here, right? Like getting right into the question and you, you define health community. Like actually maybe before that, like you just talk about like the evolution of this idea and just like, tell us how it came to you, how it came to Artie and, you know, why it ultimately finds this expression in this book that you, that you wrote. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough question, but a good one. <laughs> um, Artie and I, in terms of like where our work comes from, whether it's talking about death panel or health communism, it both, you know, sort of originates in, work that we've been doing for a long time around what we would call health finance, right? So this is not just healthcare, but sort of the politics and um, systems and ways that we pay for care. And also as part of that, sort of what care counts as care and who counts as a deserving recipient of care. So, you know, there's been a sort of long history where I've engaged with this as a uh, person who has a chronic illness, who is on disability, and sort of as I learned through my own experience, it radicalized Artie and I to interact with so many systems that 
hit you left and right with administrative burdens that sort of surveil you, that that treat you in a way that really makes you feel pretty bad for for seeking the help that you're entitled to, that you need, right? And so one of the things that we wanted to do um, is to show people a little bit sort of what is behind some of the lenses that we use on death panel. So, you know, all of this time that I was experiencing, whether it was like the medical system or the social security disability insurance system in the United States, um, you know, or dealing with Medicaid, for example, you know, the the whole time I was also sort of embarking in research in the realm of disability studies and sort of immersing myself in that. And so we brought that kind of angle, the health justice angle, the real focus on health finance and the disability angle to death panel when we created our podcast, which is really sort of trying to fill a hole in the way that the left talks about health, illness, disability. Um, you know, we wanted to have a conversation about Medicare for all that was just not happening. So um, we wanted to show people sort of some of the the stories and the histories and some of the ideas that help us sort of do our work on death panel, which is informed by a lot of this work looking into the kind of history of disability and the ways that the the state has dealt with disability or classified disability in the United States in particular, but also all sorts of places like Germany, Europe, UK, Canada, etc. So health communism hopefully could take you from zero, knowing nothing about this, not, not really caring about health finance, and give you some idea of the perspective we're coming from and the kind of things that we have in mind when we're working on death panel. So, you know, why do we rally against Eric Adams' proposed plan to remove people from the street if they look right. mentally ill, right? It's not just because we think that's a heinous policy in the current context. It's also because we're sort of deeply embedded in understanding the history of institutionalization, of psychiatric um, asylums, and of the kind of mistakes that we've made in the past that have really shaped our experience of disability, mm -hmm. illness, and labeling in our current moment. Um, so you define this in the book as like, quote, a radical abundance of care that functionally casts off centuries of ideologies of austerity, subjection and, and extraction. Right. And you mentioned that, you know, some of the thinking around it came out of a sort of lack that you saw around even like the Medicare for all conversation. Right. How is this functionally different from that? Right. Because I think that what you said was actually quite interesting to me, which is that I think it is true that when a lot of people on the left talked about Medicare for all, the world of health that they were envisioning was the exact same as the one that we have now. It's just that they wouldn't get a bill for it, you know, <laughs> like that there would just right. be no bill in the mail, right? But everything else is the same. Like you go to the same hospital, you see the same types of doctors, the doctors maybe are even paid the same, right? Um, that, uh, but that everybody can just do it, right? It would be something like how they sort of envisioned Canada or something like that. But how, how are, how is your and Artie's vision different from that? Well, I think one of the things that's important to sort of underline is that like, we think Medicare for all is a great floor. Um, right. we don't want it to be the kind of endpoint in the horizon that we're all working towards. It should be part of our political process. 
In terms of why it's a good policy, definitely people were interested in it in terms of like their own personal experience of healthcare. When we're talking about not wanting to pay for something at the point of service, what we're really talking about is like how it feels to be at the doctor, right? And trying to remove some of that mediation that occurs that really is a a huge part of any care relationship is, you know, what is your job? What are your socioeconomic circumstances? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in some ways, yes, people didn't want to have to deal with the cost, but we have to remember that costs aren't just, you know, simple actuarial, you know, bank balances. There are sort of residual social and political consequences for all sorts of things that reverberate and shape our experiences of systems. And so Medicare for All really also offers this opportunity to create a bargaining unit, a kind of one large bargaining unit. As we're, you know, kind of separated and siloed off each into our individual plans, sometimes Counties have up to a thousand different plans. Um, It changes from county to county. Blue Cross Blue Shield itself isn't one company, but like 60 companies broken up by region. And, (laughs) you know, it's so imagine like what would happen if, for example, all of the insurance companies declined to cover, I don't know, a brand new cancer drug. Mm -hmm. All of those cancer patients each would have to individually fight their own insurance company in their own individual context. And what Medicare for All could really offer is the kind of opportunity to fight at scale, to, to organize around access to care in a very acute and responsive way that we've never been able to try out in the United States, that, we, that also hasn't really been tried out in other countries. Because if we think about certain frameworks like the Canadian Medicare system, which is also broken up by province and province to province changes a lot. So, you know, what Artie and I propose takes the idea of how Medicare for All is not just about cost. It's also about political engagement and and leverage and actually sort of participation. And do we have power? Building power, ultimately, more than anything else for people. And one of the things that, you know, that could be a part of is towards a kind of vision of, of health communism, which is all care for all people. Because even as it stands, you know, all of the existing socialized medicine systems have rationing. They have parameters. You know, they will approve or deny drugs based on cost. There are mechanisms in place based on the idea that overutilization is a real issue and that you need to sort of meter access to care. And so what we're pushing for is for a vision of healthcare that drops all of that ideology of the economic valuation of life and says, okay, like, doesn't matter, you know, what your income is, doesn't matter what your job is, doesn't matter what your condition is, like, what care do you need? And Mm -hmm. what is the best way to get it to you? And that's the kind of vision of healthcare that is so different from anything that we've experienced, which is why we're kind of trying to just propose the idea, trying to name the reality that we live in that goes unsaid, uh, naming it as like health capitalism is the opposite of health communism. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, whatever health communism ultimately is, is something that we have to all do together, right? Like this is not a project where we're going to kind of come to you with like top down answers, but 
the book has the kind of evidentiary support that we think like can help people really take a step towards starting to think, you know, in a way that rejects these frameworks that we've seen over and over reproduced across policy that say we have to limit um, as a point of being able to manage demand, right? Instead of trying to scale up our resources to meet the demand that we know we can plan for and know that we can have and sort of achieving efficiency through centralization, collaboration, and planning, not through razor thin margins and squeezing profit out of the bodies of the workers and the patients, right? Like that's the current system. That's our current way of making our system efficient. It's brutal. And there are ways to, you know. Yeah. Hospital balance sheets are really sort of, it's almost admirable how the way that they're able to think about things, you know, like, I mean, that's the question of like, well, why do you have this many ICU beds, for example, right? Which is a big question that came up all the time during COVID. And it's like, well, you know, functionally, if there's, you know, like this is basically, you know, how many people we think are worth, right? Sort of devoting these Mm -hmm. types of beds to. Um, Yeah, Tammy, do you have any, do you have any questions about this sort of broader concept at the Yeah, for sure. Well, I just wanted to pick up on what you were talking about with Medicare for all being in in terms of characterizing it as like a bargaining unit, because I think something going on in the book is, you know, obviously the the title health communism, and then you guys, you guys describe it as a manifesto in the book. And so, um, you know, one thinks about, you know, the way we traditionally think about communism, which is kind of using the organizing unit of the worker. And um, it seems I, I sort of read your book as doing like two things at once, like on the one hand, you're talking about the way that capitalism sort of um, deals with healthcare in terms of both needing us to live and die, like kind of weeding out some people <laughs> and keeping other people or having like an ideal body to be a productive worker. And that's sort of like already envisioned in some communism that we know. And then on the other hand, you're also talking about what if we also what if we don't just think of like, um, you know, communism in terms of like the unit being the worker, but being the body or, be you know, having like health and mm-hmm. disability as the kind of organizing principle of, of social change. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit about that, because there's these kind of like two systems happening at once, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess maybe I'll address the second one first, which really comes from an approach that's led by Black feminist thought and the idea of margins to the middle, which is the idea of sort of seeking to both like sort of identify problems and come up with solutions for problems and ideas for for organizing interventions whether that's advocacy or mutual aid based on the needs of the margins not Mm -hmm. the middle right of those with the greatest needs of the use cases that are difficult that are the ones that require you know more thought and then working from the hardest case down to the easier cases becomes a kind of, you know, one, it's an easier progression, but two, we never circle back for those edge cases that we say Mm -hmm. like, oh, we'll circle back and, and, and make sure that you can access society, but we're going to just do this first. And that's very much what's happened in a lot of ways, but the COVID response is that we've seen a kind of prioritization of like, okay, well, we have to get 
we have to get things up and running and that's going to come at the cost of, of restricting uh, access to society for people who are immunocompromised and yeah. we'll deal with that later. Right. Like we have to deal with this now. And so there was a kind of priority uh, shift and a cost benefit judgment was made and disabled people lost out. And this is something we sort of see often, right? The idea of, of, this kind of being an extra concern or something that we have to circle back on or that we don't have time or the capacity to take on, right? Or that just is kind of one more thing. But what it ignores is that in solving for the difficult problems and thinking about those edge cases, like how do we provide care for people who need a lot of it for a long Mm -hmm. time, who are never going to be quote unquote, productive citizens, but still, you know, deserve a life with care and joy and the resources that they need to survive. Right. And this is the kind of idea of like, well, if we can provide for that person, right, for the hardest case, then we should be able to provide for everyone towards the middle. So in both senses, actually, we're trying to kind of propose to the left not just like a, a new way to look at things, but that there's mm-hmm. an advantage here that we have material that hasn't been worked with very deeply on the left. We have things that the left just has not thought about very deeply. And frankly, as a disabled person, you know, the history of disability, this is something that people are coming to understand in the United States, but people don't know the stories. People don't understand the history of disability broadly that's changing and I love it. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, we can't discount all of the valuable lessons that disabled organizing, resilience, survival, things like the disability justice movement or the disability rights movement have tried, gone through and learned from because these are like huge resources towards both rethinking how we build our sort of politics and solidarity and how we sort of bargain and also think of leverage, but also rethinking how, um, you know, embodied knowledge factors into both organizing and political theory and trying to make sure that we're, you know, taking contributions intellectually from from people who are normally not necessarily tapped for their input is, mm-hmm. is really important. And you guys are intending this book to be practical, right? Like there's this kind of restatement in the book that you hope it to be used in in organizing and stuff like that. Can you say a little bit about how you you envision that? One of the things that was going on when we were writing the book was that in our Discord server, we had a reading group going. (laughs) I I mean, I, I love our Discord. There's nothing better. Um, I'm sure you guys feel the same way. (laughs) And so we were doing a reading group and everybody was, we were reading Liat Ben Moshe's book, Decarcerating Disability. I actually interviewed her earlier today for Deaf Panel. Um, And, you know, it became this way of both coming together, sort of meeting each other, learning about each other, learning together, but also of sort of understanding ourselves and our experience of the pandemic, right? And the book was actually very useful in thinking through things like what was going on in terms of both the, uh, you know, sort of backlash to the 2020 uprisings and also in terms of the kind of backlash to early COVID protections we saw 
in the fall of 2020, the emergence of things like the Great Barrington Declaration, ideas like focus protection. And so, you know, this this book, which wasn't written specifically to be used this way, became a kind of galvanizing fuel for our community. And so it also put a lot of pressure on Artie and I because we wanted to make sure that like our book <laughs> could also be used in a similar way that that people could not just like take from it the lessons that are there at face value, but that they could bring their own experience to the book and like probably mm-hmm. read through it and find one or two things that are like, oh yeah, that sounds exactly like this time when I was at the doctor and blah, 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 or yeah. I know someone in that circumstance, or I've been through that. And, and that's part of what we were sort of hoping was that it could also, people could not just sort of see themselves and see these ideas kind of pushed, right? But that also it kind of like, could be used as a way to just start conversations as a jumping off point for imagining some of these, these kinds of structures or ideas or campaigns or rhetoric that would be required to actually achieve something like passing Medicare for all. Right. And, you know, on that point, there was one thing that did strike, you know, me personally, I want to talk to you about is, you know, I read this review in locks of the book. I found this really interesting. I'm just going to read from it here, which is, The authors find the very concept of health, quote, a vulgar phenomenon. We're trained to see it as something we should work toward and pay good money to maintain from gym memberships to organic foods to medication to meditation apps as a, quote, possession, not an ontology, something you could one day have and not something you can ever be. Disease, meanwhile, is framed as, quote, something episodic, since most people experience healthcare as triage in the form of billable encounters instead of an ongoing state of being. If you've ever gone to work sick because you need the job to treat the sickness, you know the basic argument of health communism to be true. Health under capitalism is an impossibility. I was thinking about this, you know, the reason why that struck to me or sort of stuck out to me today was because I was thinking about this very recently, which was that, you know, like health at this point, especially, you know, where I live in Berkeley or places like that, I think in Los Angeles, it's true. Maybe it's true in California and other places, but I think it's just true across the country. You know, like it's almost like an aesthetic commodity Mm -hmm. consumer choice right and so like you have all this stuff like i was only thinking about it because like alice waters designs my child's like the berkeley public schools (laughs) 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 and i was and like for me that's very exciting because i just assume that it's gonna be like you know the housing costs are very high here i'm just like well one of the things is in the public schools they get free lunch right and it's designed by (laughs) alice Waters, so it must be healthy you know but then I asked my kid, what'd you eat? And she's like, I ate uh, hamburgers and chocolate milk. Or not chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is banned. But like, you oh, know, yeah, like, banned, I ate, right? like French fries <laughs> and, and a hamburger. And I'm like, this is probably not that much health. How is that right? Chez Panisse? <laughs> yeah. or, or, you, or you walk around and there's, of course, like farmer's markets, everything like this. And then it's like, it is actually just within these types of contexts, fully a consumer choice thing. And nobody actually knows whether or not it's having a health effect or not. It's just sort of a feels <laughs> thing, right? And that that extends almost through. And the reason why I thought about this when I read uh, the aha moment I had when I was reading about this is just like, oh, that's just true across the board, you know? Like that's true from like the lobby that you have at your hospital, for example. There's this horrific story uh, today about um, uh, a uh, hospital in New York City where this woman, went, this black woman, went in to ha- and to give birth, and she had an epidural and she died. Yeah. Did you read this story? I mean, it's awful yeah. and like the negligence that the anesthesiologist had, but that how sort of from top bottom it was, totally. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so then you have real examples where like it's not just the lobby there is like actual hospitals that are you know like underfunded they don't have as good oversight or whatever but then there is also like a version of it where like at a certain level it is just like well how does this sort of color on the wall make you feel right and that Mm -hmm. all these sorts of things are actually how most americans now experience health right like it's just sort of what choices have you made under capitalism i don't know i'm just like sharing here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I don't no. have a question. I'm just saying, like it was very provi- like it sort of like like it sort of blew up in my head where I was just like, oh well, that's just true of everything. And like I definitely like I changed healthcare uh, or health providers because I changed my job, right? And I was like, yeah. I just didn't like going to the hospital over there because I thought it was ugly and crowded, you know. <laughs> and I like this hospital because it's less crowded and because <laughs> one of the offices is really nice, even though I think that the couches are ugly, you know, Um, (laughs) or like, like I don't have health insurance right now because of, you know, like when you have an employment change or you're in the gap, right? Like, right. I I don't have coverage. So I'm going outside. I'm like, am I going to get hit by a car? Like, but I I was thinking about it. I was just like, well, why do we make these, you know, how, how did these ideas get ingrained in people's heads, right? That this is what health should be. And I don't know. I found that to be like, at the very least, like something that I hadn't really thought very much about, you know, like I hadn't thought, why do I, why do I sort of reduce things in this sort of way? Well, I love hearing that. Honestly, thank you. Cause it's, it's one of those things where it seems counterintuitive to say health is impossible, right? Because some people all day long, all they think about is like how they could be healthier. (laughs) I mean, let's think of like Gwyneth Paltrow, the prime example, Right. right? This is someone morning to night, she is concerned with making choices that make her healthy because she believes that health stems from informed choices and access to resources. And in some sense, she's right, you know, but in the other sense, it's like this is where a class analysis of health is really useful, right? Because we can start to understand health as a class issue And this kind of aspirational understanding of health that we have and the way that we value it sort of relative to aesthetics and understand it through things like branding really is is important towards understanding the way that it's been captured by capital and the way that what's been prioritized in so many of these instances is a a kind of customer experience that many people don't have access to, but also that treats the patient like a customer, right? I mean, there was a concerted effort to stop saying patient and use the word consumer in the way that we talked about people who used healthcare. And and this is something that's happened several times. We've seen rebrands, we've seen ways of framing this. And for a very long time, um, you know, the this sounds paranoid, right? But it's not. It's just hegemony. Like, so many uh, health insurance corporations or, um, you know, just the kind of uh, professional lobbying groups like the AMA, they've employed a lot of PR people over the decades to help Mm -hmm. reproduce their messaging. And so we've sort of come to understand many of the things that we think of as being health through these kinds of warped 
and um, very, you know, specifically sort of biased towards thinking of the way that we do healthcare now as like mm-hmm. natural or something as this fully sprung <laughs> from whole cloth. And part of that comes from this belief in kind of the dogma of personal responsibility and achieving health through making the perfect set of choices. And then you start to look like, of course, like predatory wellness industry stuff makes sense in this context. Right, stuff right, like right. MLM yeah, yeah. marketing, you know, uh, vitamin scams or something like a pyramid scheme that makes sense in this context. And so, you know, the ways that we experience healthcare is like fully mediated by economics. And we rarely ever think of it that way. But once you start to think of it that way, it's really hard to ignore. Right. It's similar to like what Aaron, we talked about this in an earlier episode, like what Aaron and I basically said about parenting advice, right? Which is just like a set of, in the end, it's a appeal to the consumer choices of the upper middle class, right? And (laughs) And health discussion is like that too. I mean, I just... Last week, everyone was getting mad on Twitter because the Times wrote a piece about how um, actually drinking a glass of wine a day is bad, which is like the ninth time they flip flop back on this. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought about this someone I, like when I was an editor um, way back, you know, at the New Yorker, too, because I was doing a lot of health stuff. And then and I was like, oh, it's really interesting how like basically this entire conversation about health in these types of publications is essentially just consumer choice advice that is based a lot of times in things that are going to be contradicted in two years and that people just ping pong back and forth. But like, this is not a, like, this is not that these places, of course, these places do also publish things about these types of things, like, you know, like lead paint or something like that. Yes, they do. (laughs) They do publish things about that too. But it's generally not like what people think about when they think about health, right? Like, that's not really what they're thinking about. They actually are thinking about, should I drink a glass of wine a day for my heart or not? Or is it good or bad? And that is like, it's sort of captured the entire health conversation in this way that's like, actually quite unsettling, right? Because like, and then you just sort of conclude, well, probably all these studies are wrong, you know, and like, <laughs> like nobody knows what they're talking about. And like, you know, like whatever health consequences that you have from certain per- consumer choices are going to obviously be overwhelmed by like certain environmental effects or something like that. Right. And that like there's not and those are things that like you can't really opt in and out of and it, if, if you're poor, especially. And so mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like uh but I think there yeah. has been more, I mean, maybe that's true in like health sections. Cause I think a lot of that stuff be, sort of becomes like nutrition and, you know, food choices and things like that. But I do think like in recent decades for the same reason that there's been much more talk about capitalism, you know, generally, like even in mainstream papers, like there's a lot of attention to medical debt and other sorts of structural issues mm-hmm. in which right. health is financialized in the same way that housing is financialized. I mean, it's just so undeniably a part of our lives. And, you know, it's one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the country. So I do, I mean, I don't know, Beatrice, like, what do you, what do you think? Cause my reading is in my lifetime, there's been much more attention to it. It doesn't mean that the AMA isn't still up to its tricks and that, you know, generally like this stuff is still in place, but um, I no, do think a I lot think more people are open to these arguments and they see it. Yeah, I think I think it has. I think, frankly, the the sort of I think the ACA itself definitely yeah. galvanized a lot of people totally. and sort of educated a lot of people in the messaging around the ACA and why it was necessary. It made as an inadequate issue, as it is, know, obviously. 
Right. No, yeah. I, 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 but I think it also like was very successful in centralizing um, the lack of healthcare that some people had as, as a kind mm-hmm. of issue. And then it took a lot of work to, um, you know, assert that under insurance was a problem. I mean, this is something yeah. that I was working on from 2015 to like up until last year when I was really feeling like, okay, great. I do feel confident that when people have this conversation, whether it's on the floor of Congress or on a podcast or, you know, wherever, that they're going to mention under insurance, not just uninsurance, right? And so that's like the kind of slow clock that these things work on. And there have been ongoing movements for health justice, for single payer in the United States for decades, right? And I think we really have to kind of credit the decades of work by the organizers whose footsteps we're walking in right now, who really, you know, as imperfect as it is, I mean, there's no perfect movement. Like, they're imperfect for a reason, and that's kind of what makes organizing great. You know, we're going to make mistakes, and that's exactly how we learn. And so one of the things that I think we really learned from the ACA is both kind of the dangers of healthcare expansions that are not universal, You know, Mm, if Medicaid had been expanded and mandated across all of the states and we had seen Medicaid expansions. Yeah. Well, they tried, but they tried. Right. (laughs) But we we would not be facing the same kind of terrifying cliff at the beginning of April that's going to happen regardless of the state of pandemic emergency at the federal level, where up to 15 million people might lose their Medicaid in Mm. April. And again, this is moving forward no matter what. Like, so this is a kind of lesson I think that we learned, which is like, we need universal policies. We need things that start from the margins and work towards the middle, not the other way around. We need to think more, you know, about not just how to, you know, meter access to healthcare in order to manage demand, but how to invest in our health systems and in our architecture of healthcare and health delivery and medications and all of that in order to actually sort of support the demand of the industry, right? And and then beyond that, you have to start attacking the kinds of things that you were both just talking about, which within the kind of literature or in the kind of public health parlance, you would call social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Now, social determinants of health, um, sometimes people shorten it to like SDOH. Those aren't like, they're neutral. They're not, there are some good ones, there are some bad ones, right? So we could take negative social determinants of health, like air pollution or bad air quality in classrooms, and we can really work on those in order to affect positive social determinants of health, giving kids an environment to learn that has really clean air in order to prioritize, you know, reducing asthma, which in the long term is going to, you know, come to positive health outcomes, but in the kind of immediate cost benefit way that we think of healthcare as being about individual choices, interventions like Maybe we deal with asthma, not just by inventing a new inhaler, but by cleaning, dealing with the environment, dealing with climate catastrophe, right? Like those kind of options are fully off the table if we only think of health as about consumer choices. Right. Um, I I want to talk about this term that you came up with. Uh, You call it extractive abandonment. That's another thing that I find like quite provocative in Mm -hmm. here. think it's in reference to Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of organized abandonment. 
And you write, like, in a political economy built on systems of extractive abandonment, the state exists to facilitate a capacity for profit balanced always against the amount of extractable capital or the health of the individual subject. We argue that at the intersection of these forces, there exists a correlation of health to capitalism called extractive abandonment. That is the means by which the state constructs health culturally, politically, and institutionally. And in the process of constructing, destroying, and reconstructing health, the state itself is made, right? And so, like, can you can you explain this idea a little bit? Because, like, I, I it sort of rang a few bells for me, you know, and I, I I found it to be true. And I just wanted, like, I just wanted, like, can you just, you know, like, like, where do you find these intersections, right? Like, well, what is sort of an example of 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 the state being made through through this uh, extractive abandonment? There are so many. And part of that has to do with the fact that extractive abandonment is a kind of name for something that happens um, at a population level, because it's really about kind of optimizing resources. Um, I think a really good example of that is nursing homes in the United States. We covered a case recently um, that's going on in the Supreme Court Um, where you have a family who's essentially suing um, because of, you know, alleged mistreatment of a family member. And the state is countersuing, basically trying to push back in such a way with using the legal strategy that would make it so that all sorts of people on Medicaid would have no grounds to sue the state for negligence, for you know, malfeasance. It's it's terrifying, right? And so this is a really good example. Some of the reasoning that's being used there is that, okay, well, the state gets X amount of federal dollars to pay for, um, you know, residents of nursing homes and these kind of nursing homes they run. Over 90%, I believe, I might be quoting that wrong, it's somewhere between 70 and 90% of the nursing homes in Indiana are owned by the state. So this is a huge chunk of money. A lot of that money went into building a brand new hospital, building lots of brand new hospitals. It's not going into patient care. It's not going into the pockets of the workers. Like we know that for sure, right? But what it is going into is to create new revenue streams through fancy hospitals that are built. And so you have this kind of moment too where we have... Okay, so this is like multiple intersecting forces of health finance in the in the section of nursing homes, because you also have the nursing home company who's going to take that little bit of money that the state didn't use to build a hospital and is using on the care. And it's up to the, you know, kind of companies that are maybe not running the nursing homes, but maybe staffing it or managing it. Because there are all these contractors who also come in who are then given a sort of opportunity to make a profit off of this sliver of money. And as a result, what gets squeezed is the workers and the patients to find those surplus profit margins in order to sort of make this worthwhile. And so this is a kind of, this is a really good example of how when you're going into design policy or whatever, if you're coming in with this kind of priority of making sure to kind of uh, optimize the population and, and and make sure that all of the money that's being spent is being spent in a cost-effective way. Like, obviously, that's a good thing on paper. But if it results in the priority and all these systems being designed, um, being where can various private firms and contractors come in and get theirs and, like, get their bag and leave and really sort of take and extract 
from the patients and from, you know, the kind of systems of health themselves and the workers themselves that staff it in such a way that results in the very last consideration being patient care. Right, um, right, right. I mean, like nursing homes famously, they like they set up boondoggles within nursing homes a lot of times which aren't real even real. And then they like <laughs> charge for the management of the not real boondoggle, you know, and then all of that is just ways in which you're trying to like create different ways in which you can just squirrel away the Medicaid money that's coming from the federal government, which is like most of what their money is coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, I didn't realize, and if Indiana is like all done by the state, that's pretty singular because most, you know, most of the industry is for profit and big chains, but yeah, I mean, that seems to be a very, the example I was thinking about also was like here in California, whenever they like create the gigantic state response to homelessness, like that's also, you know, this also seems like it will be true then as well. Right. Where right. like the you care have, courts. right. Yeah. You have care courts, right. Like, I mean, that's like, I mean, that, that at least is like, to me, at least it, care courts for the people who don't know, or this idea that Gavin Newsom and some other people had in which like you are essentially a police officer. It's always going to be a cop, but they say it's like a mental health official. Just like, okay, so if a mental health person is walking along the street, you know, and they just see somebody, then like, it's going to be a cop, right? Mm -hmm. So a police officer sees somebody going through what they determine is like a mental health break or something like that, then they can compel that person to enter something called care court. And in care court, you basically have a lawyer, right? Which, and they say, it's not carceral. It's not about like entering people into the system. And then your question is like, well, then why do they need a lawyer? You know, <laughs> it's, and a, like, it's a court. It's a right. court. It's, you called it name. care court. How know? is a court not carceral? And Navneet talked about it in our episode last week. Yeah. Right, right. And then the judge basically just says, hey, you can um, like, you know, the, the judge will basically say you have to do this, this and this and you have to keep up on these things or else I'm going to appoint you to conservatorship which is bad, you know, like, um, like for that person, um, they basically become a word of the state for the rest of their lives, basically, right? And that they like a lot of their personal freedom is taken away. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that like, but that is how like the state is going to gain legitimacy with the public in California is through how they handle this. And, you know, the way that the political winds are shifting right now, the more punitive type of system that is going to be built is going to eventually win out and win people out of political capital, I think, right? Like, I mean, like, basically, they're already talking about, like, shipping people out to the desert and being like, oh, no, it'll be cool, you know? Like, I mean, you know, like, it's accelerating very quickly. And so, yeah, this idea of, like, you abandon a certain amount of people within this, and that's how, and then you create this ec- economy on top of it. I don't know. I think that's a very cool idea. I mean, there's, in the kind of grand scheme of things, like, even death is profitable, I've been using this example a lot recently because I used it and people had not heard it before. And I, that surprised me. It's so I'm trying to make sure that I'm repeating it, but in the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis, obviously there were a lot of people dying and this was really good business for nursing homes. And when better drugs came out and people were surviving longer and, you know, living with AIDS was becoming like a a more tangible reality for more people. There was reporting where you had funeral directors lamenting the early good days of, of HIV AIDS when they were, you know, dealing with funerals hand over fist. So in the kind of grand 
you know, ledger of human life that the sort of U.S. government is going to approach policy banking with. Like, we have to remember that in capitalism, death is also profitable. We experience it as something that's very personal, that shapes our lives. But, you know, it's also an industry just like healthcare, and it's part of healthcare in a lot of ways. And, you know, we don't, we don't really have a lot of policy leverage right now. If you're someone who supports Medicare for all, we don't have a friendly Congress. We don't have a executive branch that's friendly to this kind of policy. Like, yes. And it does feel like every time a kind of solution is proposed, it's it's bending towards the carceral and it's always working towards, you know, making things worse. But I don't I don't think that that's necessarily right. I don't think that we don't totally have options. And I don't think that it's like destiny that we're going to end up with these terrible iterations of policy that prioritize extractive abandonment and not care. Um, We certainly live in a reality where our political will right now is very limited by the kind of ideals desires and ideology of neoliberalism and of racial capitalism and like that is alienating oppressive it's depressing and it you know results in us feeling like the window of possibility in our kind of political horizon is much smaller than i think it really is in actuality i mean we spent so much time in the 2016 and in the 2020 election debating whether or not private insurance companies deserve to exist or not do they deserve to make profits the way they make profits was part of the debate right, right? this is a, a tremendous amount of energy went into that and it, it is exhausting and some days it feels like we went nowhere but like <laughs> i don't know what's the counterfactual if we had not had that conversation that would not be maybe a topic of discussion, you know, small things really build up and we think of change in a way that's very romantic that kind of looks back and thinks of things as happening kind of in a linear progressive way. But ultimately, it's a kind of more spontaneous situation where <laughs> there's a lot happening at once and there's going to be good, there's going to be bad. We're going to move forward. We're going to move backwards. What's important is being sort of clear about our ethics and our goals and not compromising on our politics for something reasonable. Obviously, we're going to have to make compromises when it comes to policy and we're going to have to work with things that we don't want to work with. But we can still say, you know, we're not giving up on the long game. I'm not giving up on Medicare for all or health communism. So you are because I think I guess I you're sounding to me like more maybe more optimistic than maybe at points in the book where I thought, for instance, like I know in the book, you don't really address the pandemic per se. But, you know, you there are these moments where you kind of say like, like, I think at some point in the introduction, you say something like we didn't really learn anything from this pandemic. Um, And if you think we did learn something and that we have made progress, just look at like where we are after the AIDS crisis, like with, with the implication that in fact, like things haven't really gotten better and we haven't really won many incremental victories. So I guess like, are you, 
is that just like kind of an exaggerated case and, and now you're saying something a little bit different or can no, you clarify I think both like your are, view? I that? think both are true. Honestly, we can hold the reality of our critique of like the current moment and also hope for a better future and a less brutal and cruel world that we can build. Sure, and I yeah. think it's more about trying to make room for like big political asks and desires and ideas less about evaluating if any of the current you know kind of situations are a success or not or represent progress because I think that kind of pessimistic view that you mentioned is definitely the conclusion of the book like we we could have written health communism entirely about covid but we wanted to make a point that this was pre-existing and and that these mm-hmm. dynamics were not novel and this wasn't exclusive to covid and and this wasn't a kind of exceptional shift but a continuation of of a longer history so part of kind of what we were doing was really showing obviously a lot of negative examples and showing how these really horrible ideas sort of become embedded in in the ways we think about the world but I think even in that, you know, we kind of have to practice hope. Like we have to remind ourselves Mm -hmm. over and over, like, this is what we live in. This is what we live through. You know, I can be very critical of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I can be like, fuck the ADA. I do that regularly on death panel. (laughs) It makes me angry. Yeah. Do I want to be a disabled person in a pre-ADA world? Fuck no. Absolutely not. You know, like, so... In some sense, it's kind of about more like practicing the hopeful praxis or sure. practicing hope than about necessarily pinning hopes on, I, for example, like a particular policy being like the kind of windfall moment. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I have one last question. Um, you talk about um, health communism being necessarily international and internationalist in nature and in Curious if you want to just say a tiny bit about that. One of right. the case studies in the book people will see is um, this German health activist collective from the 70s that you highlight. But but anyway, just to this point of like, why does this have to be a borderless or cross-border movement? Well, I think this is really kind of both key to our organizing in terms of health um, and in terms of climate. Mm-hmm. Right now, the pandemic is a great example of how healthcare outcomes in one country affect right. healthcare outcomes in, in the surrounding area. Um, for a long time in the United States, we've said, oh, we, we want a healthcare system like Canada. And folks in Canada who are organizing to fight austerity in the Canadian system <laughs> are like, can you guys stop saying that? Because everyone thinks that Canada's got this awesome system. And so no one will listen to me when I'm trying to explain. <laughs> but we're like, can... it's so much better. No, right. And like, yeah. yes, it's so much better. And like, also the U.S. <laughs> is the gold standard of disability policy in the world. But does right. that mean yeah. that like we want, you know, everybody to to rise up only to the level of the U.S.? Right. right. We want to be able to surpass ourselves and sort of move yeah. towards um, something better. And I think the really the only way to do that when it comes to thinking through health is to address things at the kind of level of social determinants, which are always going to 
require that we think of things beyond borders because while borders are going to affect distribution of resources politically and that's going to have downstream effects and we'll have to consider them so it's not saying like ignore them Mm -hmm. but like as a kind of construct like it's not a barrier to disease it's not going to stop climate change and so we have to be thinking kind of beyond these nationalistic frames that really kind of walk and tie all healthcare to our one individual country because there may come a time where borders really shift and we'll need new models for thinking through healthcare that are different than the nationalistic model that we currently understand is the way that things are done and so we have to give ourselves room to try and imagine you know what would we do if we were trying to centralize and make more efficient the distribution of care resources in all of North America And we were trying to make sure that Mexico and rural Canada and the rural United States and the South were all getting the same resources as Berkeley. Everybody had Alice Water food for their kids, right? Like, so (laughs) that's the kind of like idea that like we hope health communism can be a kind of bucket for or can help push people towards thinking about problems at that scale because we don't give ourselves permission to do that. And that's practical, right? It's because we're working under a system that really does not want to extract the relationship that health and capital have developed. But Mm -hmm. if we want to sort of secure better lives for workers and non-workers alike, then we're going to have to get creative and really think about health in all of the ways that exists, good and bad. Yeah, that, that sort of comparative country thing... It has its appeal just because it's an example. Yeah. And yeah. the uh, downside of it is always that like when it something goes, I, I guess I just think about it. It's like at some point it, uh, in the 2010s, Korea like put out a universal childcare um, policy where childcare would be free for everybody. And then they sort of scrapped it quite quickly because <laughs> they were saying, well, a lot of people aren't using it, you know? And then, so when people bring up universal childcare, which, you know, I think is a very important and, obvious idea given the cost of childcare and also how essential it mm-hmm. is for people and how people basically i don't know it's just so unequal especially given the cost right now um people are just like well it didn't work you know that in that one example and then and then it just becomes gospel you know and then mm-hmm. it just sort of becomes well if it didn't work there in the same way it's like oh if it does work there right then we just sort of take maybe too many lessons from it um but uh, yeah, well, thanks for being on. Yeah, thank um, you. Thanks was, for having me. Yeah, this was it's great. Fun. And like the well, the fun. show is <laughs> Death Panel, um, and the book is Health Communism. Um, you can buy it from Verso. It's a <laughs> hardback with a free ebook. is twenty percent off right now for nineteen ninety six. So if nice. you'd like to purchase Jay, it right yeah. now. I um, love the 96 yeah. cents. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it looks great. It's really beautiful. Congratulations on it. Thank you. Um, thank all you. right. Appreciate thank it. Thank you.